0: Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you, everyone, for aiding us to join our voices together in praise of our God. It's a, a little bit of a shout out here because you can't see this, but there is a, a father son team behind the scenes uh, working on the sound and working on the data. So we got Mark and 12 year old Andrew doing a tremendous job. So thank you, young man, for serving us. great to see. So thank you for your example, Mark, and including your boy, and for whoever trained Andrew to do this, probably Zach or someone on the stream team. Uh, Excellent, excellent work. I would like you to imagine the following scenario with me. Supposing that someone came to you and asked you, pressed you even, to take them to see a great display of love. Where would you take them? Someone's pressing you. I want you to take me and show me what you think is one of the greatest displays of love. Where would you go? I was recently in an airport, so maybe you would go to the arrival section of the airport and just watch as family members and friends greeted one another after being apart for some time. Maybe you would take them to a hospital to observe doctors and nurses up to their elbows and the body fluids of perfect strangers to provide care and to save life. You might choose the retirement party of a teacher who has dedicated years of their life to educate the children of others. Or perhaps you might go to the cemetery and stand and watch and wait until you saw loved ones stand beside the grave of a person that they had lost and weep and grieve as an expression of their great love. You could visit a long term care facility to find a spouse quietly and lovingly feeding a meal to their husband or wife of many years now suffering from dementia. Or you could stand outside of an ordinary house on an ordinary night and watch and wait until a dim light goes on and an exhausted mother wakens herself once again to feed her newborn baby. Others might opt to sit outside the local fire station to watch trucks pull out as men and women rush off to put themselves in harm's way to save others. There's lots of options available, isn't there? And maybe you can think of your own legitimate demonstrations of love that are available, but as true as those may be, and they certainly are, none of them is the greatest. And so what is? That's a question I wish to answer this morning, and that we find the answer is of enormous importance because our capacity for showing love as creatures made in the image of God, the God of love, is enormous but so is our capacity to twist and distort love into grotesque and selfish imitations bent inwards upon themselves. Our longing to be loved is also enormous as creatures made in the image of a God of holy love, but in that longing we turn to counterfeit demonstrations as we work from wrong definitions to our harm and which are often and are an offense to the God of holy love and perhaps this very week. You gave yourself over to a counterfeit version of what love truly is. So this morning, I want to turn to the one place we are given the definition and the demonstration of the greatest love, which is to the Word of God and to the Son of God. And we find that answer, and as we find that answer, we ought to give ourselves entirely to the One who showed the the greatest demonstration of love. In our desire to be loved, there is no one else we should ever give ourselves ultimately to, and as we do so, we will be compelled to imitate his love. Now, if you're already a Christian, I imagine you have a pretty good idea of where this is headed, especially with the Lord's Supper before us. Yet, I guarantee that not one of us in this room has ever fully plumbed the depths of this love, nor basked in this love, nor glorified God for this love as we could and as we should. So I want you to come along with me as we go through a a few questions working our way to the greatest demonstration of love through the life of Judah and his brothers. And if you are not a Christian, my open prayer is that you will see and savor a love such as you never have before, and that you will surrender to the marvelous embrace of the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So turn with me to Genesis 44. It's page 38 in the Blue Bibles. Some of them might be red. Most of them are blue. But page 38 is where you'll find Genesis 44. And we've been working our way through this series, as uh, this book as a church. We're getting near the end Genesis 44 is the chapter we are in this morning, and we will be seeing as we work our way through the text what the greatest demonstration of love is. So Genesis 44, I'll begin reading in verse 1, but let me pray briefly before we hear God's word again. Let's pray. Lord, here we are again on another Sunday, a local church. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord, as an expression of the church that has existed and does exist through time and across space, and one day we'll be gathered in one place at one time around your throne, and we pray, Lord, that as we are here this morning, that you would wash us and renew us by your word sanctifying us with that which is truth as we read it and as it is proclaimed, so that we might one day be presented without spot or wrinkle or blemish to the bridegroom who is Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Genesis 44, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house... Fill the men's sacks with food, this is his brother's, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, which is Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city, now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you have overtaken them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, The money money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, My Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked the servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him." We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol, or the grave. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, He will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we press into this theme of love, we really just need to appreciate the nature of the test that Joseph sets up for his brothers it's rather elaborate, and it's extremely purposeful. At the end of chapter 43, the brothers are eating and drinking merrily in Joseph's presence. They still, in chapter 44, don't know that Joseph, the man, is their brother. And they ate and drank merrily in his presence, even though Benjamin has received a substantial blessing from this man in Egypt, as well as five times the portion of the rest of the men. And to this, the brothers do not react, indicating that they are truly beginning to change as Yahweh's unstoppable providence advances. But Joseph wants and needs to test them further, so he sets up Benjamin to fail in verses 1 to 12 to see how the rest of the brothers would react. The burning question on Joseph's heart and mind is whether or not they will treat a favored son of their father the same way that they treated him, especially when their freedom is on the line. That's what the test is set up to reveal, and the tension mounts. With bulging sacks, the brothers leave without any concern, given the reception they have received the night before from Pharaoh's right-hand man. They don't even consider that some of the bulge in their bags is their money, nor that Benjamin has been loaded up with Joseph's silver cup. Returning with food, being a matter of urgency, they leave early in the morning in verse 3, but they're tailed by Joseph's steward at Joseph's command, which is all part of the ruse. And as we read, when the steward catches up to them, he speaks in verse 6 as Joseph commands in verses 4 and 5. And note there in verse 4 that Joseph phrases a question that is soon to be reversed in Genesis 45. Why have you repaid evil for good? And in verses 7 to 9, the brothers respond, and, and their logic is sound. We cannot be thieves. If we were, why would we have brought the money back when we returned? We wouldn't even think about stealing silver or gold from your house, your Lord's house, so they're kind of indignant, and they quickly drop their sacks and open them up and go ahead. With that said, though they cannot, we can hear the trap shut. And the steward responds in verse 10, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And The drama is drawn out in verses 11 and 12 as each man's sack is searched, beginning with Reuben and then Simeon and then Levi and then Judah and then Dan and Naphtali then Gad then Asher then Issachar then Zebulun and maybe they were all sort of standing around with a smug look on their face saying, see, we told you and finally, holding your breath for one last search the man comes to Benjamin and the cup was actually found in Benjamin's sack. And their utter dismay is captured in the tearing of their clothes in verse 13. And this is where they begin to answer Joseph's test, which leads me to ask this question, is there a greater love than a love that unites Is there a greater love than a love that unites? And the reason I ask this question of the text is because of the incredible way that the brothers respond to this circumstance. They grieve as one, and they return as one. Their love for their brother unites them through this unforeseen testing, and given the full disclosure we've had into the discord of the covenant family through Genesis— I find it rather noteworthy what is not recorded in their reaction and short journey back to the city. The brothers don't lash out at Benjamin. They don't plot and scheme over what to do with their father's second favored son, the one also favored by this man in Egypt. There's no hatred. There's no arguing. They don't despise him as they once despised Joseph. Twenty years ago, these men would have taken Benjamin back themselves and would have hoped for a reward. But now, they return with him in solidarity, and it is a rather beautiful expression of a love that unites these men after generations of family discord. The Psalm 133.1 expresses, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is a reflection of the Trinitarian bonds of love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed in John 17, 21 and following that his followers would reflect this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And as Francis Schaeffer writes in an essay called The Mark of the Christian, When disagreements or situations strain love that unites, then then we truly have our golden opportunity. I quote at length here. He says, Before a watching world, an observable love in the midst of difference will show a difference between Christians' differences and other people's differences. The world may not understand what the Christians are disagreeing about, but they will very quickly understand the difference of our differences from the world's differences. If he sees us having our differences in an open and observable love on a practical level, it is in the midst of a difference, or I would add a challenge, that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well, he says, and we're all standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit observable love, then. There is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. Such a love as that is a love that perseveres. It's a love that believes. It's a love that hopes. It's a love that endures. It's a love that unites, such as we see in the response of the brothers to the fact that Benjamin has been caught with the cup. But as great as this love is, and it truly is beautiful, the love that unites, there is a love that is greater, which leads me to a second question. Is there a greater love than a love that disciplines? Is there a greater love than a love that disciplines? The reason I ask this question of the text is because of what unfolds when the brothers return to Joseph's house in verse 14. They fall before Joseph But this is different than last time, as Bruce Walkie notes. It's not in deference, it's in desperation. And while on the ground, Joseph tears into them in verse 15. What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know a man like me can practice divination? Please understand that Joseph is not condoning this. It's all part of the ruse. In Egypt, you see, there were practices where they would take cups or bowls, and they would pour water and oil into cups, and they would read the shapes of the mixtures as a way to try to foresee the future. And we know from Scripture that such practices are abhorrent to Yahweh, who alone is sovereign and who directs the affairs of the universe. So Joseph is not on board with this. In fact, as one writer suggests, this is a tongue-in-cheek ridicule of practices like divination. Because if Joseph really could practice divination, and if divination truly did work, well, couldn't he just have used it to find out who had the cup, rather than having to search all the bags of the men? So, a little bit of an undercurrent there of saying to God's people through Moses, the writer, yeah, this is not for us. That he doesn't even try his indication to God's covenant people that such practices are foolish, they're spiritually dangerous, and they are entirely off limits. Now, back to the question at hand Is there a greater love than a love that disciplines? In the life of Judah, this is highlighted. And he is highlighted in verse 14 before he even begins to speak. And listen carefully to how Judah responds to Joseph in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. The circumstantial evidence is overwhelmingly against the brother's What defense is Judah going to offer? The money and the cup were found in the sack. He has no idea how he could portray them in the right, which has echoes of what Judah says of Tamar back in Genesis 38-26 when he said, "'She is more righteous than I.'" And then Judah says something that initially puzzled me quite a bit. "'God has found out the guilt of your servants.'" What are you talking about, Judah? You didn't actually take the money. Benjamin didn't take the cup. To what is Judah confessing? They know they're innocent of this accused evil deed. So to what does he refer? And the answer must be that Judah is confessing their treatment of Joseph 22 years earlier. One writer remarks, guilt-ridden persons are known to think, if I had to do it over again. Judah is accepting of the fact that the search for the cup, again I quote, is paralleled by God's search of the brothers. And before, another writes, they were guilty but did not show remorse. Now they are innocent and demonstrate deepest agony. You see, Judah is bearing the marks of true repentance which are part of the harvest of righteousness that God's loving discipline intends to produce. Which is why I ask, is there a greater love than a love that disciplines? Because here, Judah is confessing their guilt. Here, in another situation with another favored son, Judah is thinking about the sin that he acknowledges of their selling Joseph into slavery, he accepts God's divine right to punish that sin and he submits to it. We are the Lord's servants. Both we and he also, in whose hand the cup was found. This is the fruit of genuine repentance that God's loving discipline has brought about in Judah's life. And now, I hope we begin to understand why Genesis 38 is in the story, which on the surface seems so suddenly and shockingly inserted into what seems to be about Joseph. But we have that episode because it marks the beginning of Judah's experience with God's forgiving grace. This episode confirms Judah's experience of God's forgiving grace by demonstrating Judah's experience of God's ongoing transforming grace. The Judah of Genesis 44 is not the Judah who conspired to sell Joseph into slavery in Genesis 37. The Judah of Genesis 44 is not the self centered, sexually immoral Judah of Genesis 38. Because the chastisement of God's loving discipline and the hardship of difficult circumstances, he's lost some sons, they've endured famine, he's been brought to an end of himself, all of this has humbled this man. And everyone who is willing to embrace God's loving discipline and what it exposes in our lives will always look back over their shoulder and thank God for His grace. I've been in rooms where individuals have needed to be confronted because of their sin, and it has not been easy. But as time goes on, and as God's grace works, I have follow-up conversations with those individuals And all they can do is speak with marvel at the transformation that God's discipline has brought about in their life because they were trained by it. Such people realize, as Hebrews 12, 10 to 11, indicates that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. And even though for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, we are told that later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by to those who have been trained by it. The experience of this is how we know we are God's children. And God's children thank Him for this, for exposing sin, for granting repentance, for assuring us of forgiveness, and for helping us to become better imitators of Him as dearly loved children. And so that's why I ask, is there any greater love than this, than the love of a heavenly Father who will do all that is required to conform us to the image of His beloved Son? And are you resistant to such a love? Perhaps the Spirit has recently been pressing upon you conviction of sin and you're terrified at the thought of its exposure, but this is God's good and gracious discipline in your life. Do not squirm out from under it. Embrace it. And perhaps you're not a Christian at all, and for the first time, the weight of the glory of God is pressing in upon you. Are you willing to surrender yourself to such a God who for your sake and for His glory will convict you of sin and convince you of righteousness so that you might confess your sins to God and know the beauty of His forgiveness and His grace. But as great as all of this is of God's loving discipline, it's not the greatest, which leads me to another question of The text, is there a greater love than a love that overlooks an offense? Is there a greater love than a love that overlooks an offense? The glory of this love, a love that is willing to keep no record of wrong, shines brilliantly in Joseph and Judah's next exchange. Judah's willingness for all the brothers to become Joseph's slaves presses Joseph to put an even finer point to the test, and he replies, to Judah's initial comments in verse 17. He says, Far be it from me that I should do so, that is, take them all. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And I wonder if Joseph held his breath at this moment, for this is the crux of the matter. This is the moment where all seems to balance as on the edge of a knife. Joseph has offered his brothers an out. They can go. They can leave Benjamin and go. Have they truly changed? Or will they do to this his favored younger brother as they did to him many moons ago? This is what's at stake here. And Judah responds with, take note of this, the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. Please note that the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. One calls it a speech of singular pathos and beauty. Another, the finest specimen of dignified and persuasive elegance in the Old Testament. Another calls it remarkable, and these are no overstatements. And to appreciate the depths of love embedded in this climactic moment in Judah's life, we must put ourselves as best we can in Judah's shoes. First of all, note the risk that Judah takes to intercede on behalf of his brothers, which he does with bold humility in verse 18. Though Joseph is like Pharaoh himself, Judah puts his neck on the line with his ruler of Egypt, risking exposure to anger that he was in no position to abate or to quell should it flare up against him, and that in and of itself was a mark of great love. Secondly, consider the offense that Judah overlooks, and how by doing so, he paves the way for his next and greatest act of love that will come too shortly. For Judah's whole life, his mother Leah has played second fiddle to his father's wife, Rachel. As a result, with the exception of Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin, Judah and the rest of his brothers have been treated as second-rate by their own father, Jacob. That's a bitter, painful pill to swallow. Such favoritism has plagued the covenant family for generations, causing issues with Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, and now Jacob's own children. And the wounds that this can cause, and some of you will know, they can cut deep, and they can leave lasting scars And Joseph's brothers had a visceral and violent reaction to that favoritism back in Genesis 37. They despised Joseph. They hated his dreams. They hated his status. And in sinful response to the sin of Jacob's favoritism, they initially plotted to kill their own brother, opting to sell him as a slave in the end. And for 20 years, they've perpetuated a lie that he had been torn to pieces by a wild animal to their father. So we're talking deeply rooted sin and relational dysfunction and deception and grief and pain here. Yet as Judah recounts to Joseph the events that led them to this moment, as Judah explains the reasons for why he is boldly yet humbly speaking to Joseph, just listen to the way that Judah speaks of Jacob's relationships, of his dad's relationships, with his brothers Joseph and Benjamin. Look at verse 20 first. He says to Joseph, we have a, He said, I, I told you this, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And he says this, and his father loves him. Verse 22 we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Do You hear the acknowledgement of the relationship that exists between Jacob and Benjamin, which is not like the relationship that Judah has known with his own father. In verse 27, Judah recounts these words of Jacob. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. By the way, this is the first time Joseph is hearing the account of the fake report of his own death, and he reports his dad as saying, "If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to the grave." In response to this statement by Jacob, Judah continues in verse thirty: "Now, therefore, as soon as I come, came to your servant my father, as soon as I come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us." Then, listen to what he says, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant or father with sorrow to the grave. And then hear what one individual remarks about Judah's speech. I quote, Judah's father states clearly Sorry, Judah states clearly to Joseph that his father has singled out Benjamin for a special love as he singled out Rachel's other son before. It is a painful reality of favoritism with which Judah, in contrast to the earlier jealousy over Joseph, is here reconciled out of a filial duty and more out of a filial love. He says this, his entire speech is motivated by the deepest empathy for his father, by a real understanding of what it means for the old man's life to be bound up with that of the lad. He can even bring himself to, quote, sympathetically in verse 27, Jacob's extravagant statement that his wife bore him two sons, as though Leah were not also his wife and the other ten were not also wife his sons. That, brothers and sisters, is an enormous amount to overlook. Would you not agree? And yet, in love, Judah does so, both for the sake of Benjamin and for the sake of his father, whose favoritism has certainly made life harder for him and his brothers. Truly, as Scripture teaches, it is a glory. It is a glory to overlook an offense. And surely Judah is manifesting here a love that is patient, having endured decades of favoritism. Surely this is a love that does not envy the special love that Jacob does have for Benjamin. Surely this is a love that bears all things. Surely Judah is a transformed Man, to be able to speak of such things with the humility and passion that he does. Only the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us can render such a display. Yet, as great as love is that unites, and as great as love is that disciplines, and as great as love is that overlooks and offends, those are not the greatest. There's an even greater display, and Judah shows it in verses 32 to 34. And I'm not going to phrase this as a question. I'm just going to tell you now what is the greatest display of love. And I'm going to use the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for another. There is no greater love than this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for another. And not only is Judah willing to intercede for his brothers in verse 18... Not only is Judah willing to bear the blame for anything that happens to Benjamin in verse 32, Judah is willing to take the place of Benjamin for the sake of his brother who was favored and for the sake of his father who favored him. And we have this magnificent conclusion to his incredible speech in verses 32 to 34. He says, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how? Now he gets personal. There's no more your servants. None of that language. The last verse, for how can I go back to my father? If the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Someone writes, and I quote, 22 years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he is prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be free. 22 years earlier, it continues, he stood with his brothers and silently watched them when the bloodied tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. And now he is willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. So as Judah, as Joseph tests his brothers, Judah passes with love, the greatest of loves. Love that melts Joseph's eyes to tears and brings Joseph's ruse as a hardened Egyptian lord to an end which will unveil Yahweh's purposes in Joseph's life as we will explore next week, Lord willing. For now, we stay with Judah who has just given the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis and I trust that now we understand why we have been saying all along that Joseph is the best supporting actor to Judah. I hope we understand now why Genesis 38 is there. It's not a random interjection. It's a preface to show the repentance of Judah and how Yahweh and his discipline shaped the man to respond here as he does. Barnhouse writes of this. He says, here was the eloquence of true love, love so burningly manifest." so willing to take full responsibility before God, love which thought only of Jacob and Benjamin, love that melted the heart of Joseph. Such love moved Moses to ask God to blot his name out of the book of life. Such love prompted Paul to wish himself accursed for his brothers, if only they could be saved. We see here that Judah was transformed by divine love, and in doing so, he was willing to lay down his own life. The final chapters of Genesis, they're not about Joseph. The final chapters of Genesis are about what all of Genesis is about. The line through which the one would come to crush the head of the serpent. It's about the Messianic line. It's about Jesus Christ, of whom Judah is here a shadow. He is a type. And when Matthew writes his gospel beginning with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he picks up the same highlight in Genesis 44, verse 14, and he includes it in Matthew 1-2. If you check that out on your own, there is identical wording there. This is what Matthew writes in Matthew 1:2: Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Not Joseph and his brothers. It is Judah and his brothers. Because Judah is the first person in Scripture to offer himself in the place of another human being. He offers himself instead of Benjamin. He offers himself to a life of slavery to spare his brother from the same and his father from a, surely a grief-stricken death. The writer of Genesis uses the same language in Judah's mouth instead of, in place of, as the ram that was offered instead of, in place of, Isaac, all the way back in Genesis 22. This is about substitution. This is about someone taking the place of another, and Judah is the one who shows this greatest of love. And so Bruce Waltke concludes, and I quote, Jacob will crown Judah with kingship because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule according to God's ideal of kingship that the king serves the people, not vice versa. Judah is transformed from one who will sell his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be the slave for his brother. What he offers, with that offer, he exemplifies ideal kingship. And that should draw our eyes to the greater Judah, to the lion of the tribe of Judah who is also a lamb, a lamb who was willing to be slain. A lamb who was willing to lay down his life, as we heard earlier, not for good people and not for righteous people, but for sinful people. The true king, who came not to be served but to serve, he gave his life as a ransom for our lives. And there is no greater demonstration of love than this. Every definition Every demonstration is to be measured by Jesus Christ and Him alone. For He humbled Himself by adding a human nature to His divine nature. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as such, He has been given the name then that is above every name. This is why He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaac Watts absolutely nailed it when he wrote these words. Listen. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond the degree. While well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for his own creature's sin? Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears? but drops of tears can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. There is no greater love than this. And so let us indeed give ourselves away to it. In our eating and our drinking of his love, as we partake of the bread and the cup, feasting, Upon Christ by faith and remembrance of what he has done, and so being nourished as we proclaim his death until he comes. As we look to the cross and as we look ahead, let us also look around to consider the ways that we can lay our lives down for those Christ has laid his life down for as imitators. As we look to this greatest demonstration of love that Christ has shown us at the cross, let us look out to consider ways for His name's sake that we might lay down our lives to take the message of the gospel to people and places where it has never gone before, which might be as near as across the street and might be as far as across an ocean. There is no greater love than this, that someone lay down their life for another. And this is what Jesus has done, foreshadowed by Judah to point us to Christ. This is what Jesus has done. And may his name be praised forever. Let's sing, and then we will eat and drink.